The Radio Stingray Podcast is brought to you by our gold sponsor, McNally Jones Staff Lawyers, proudly supporting the MUA Sydney branch since 1977. Need assistance with employment, industrial or workers' compensation, or any other legal problem? Phone 9233 4744 or visit mcnally.com.au and get a real fighting lawyer on your side. tuned in to Radio Stingray. G'day everyone and welcome to Radio Stingray. This is the podcast of the Sydney branch of the Maritime Union of Australia. Uh, there is so much going on in the Maritime Union right now. DP World and Hutchison, two of the world's biggest stevedores, amongst the biggest maritime employees in the country, aggressively attacking the wages and conditions of maritime workers all over Australia. Workers in these ports are of course fighting like fuck and are either already on strike or will be soon. BP has cut the wages of its seafarers by 98% by firing its entire unionised workforce. Ferry workers at NRMA on Sydney Harbour have just announced a strike during the busiest time on the harbour's busiest routes. It's all on. But in true MUA form, despite these massive attacks, the union is not taking a single backward step. Quite to the contrary, as you will hear, the MUA is running to get in front of the curve. In this episode, we're going to be talking about climate change, about coal, about jobs, We're going to be talking about the massive offshore wind power generation facility proposed for Victoria's coast. We're going to be talking about why clean energy could be the future for Australian seafarers. My name is Shane Reeside and I'm an organiser with the Sydney branch of the Maritime Union of Australia. And joining us today from the MUA State Conference in Western Australia, we have Danny Kane, the Assistant Branch Secretary of the WA branch of the MUA. How are you going, Danny? Good, thanks, Shane, mate. Glad to speak to you. Um, also in the studio, we've got Penny Howard, who is a National Officer with the MUA. Welcome, Penny. Thanks. The questions being forced upon us by the catastrophic climate crisis that's already upon us form a major fault line in Australia right now. One side of this fault line is typified by the full aggregate power of the mining lobby, aggressively using every available tactic to try and force through what would be the world's biggest coal mine in Queensland, the Adani Mine. Keep in mind that the Indian mining giant pushing this project, Adani, is responsible through negligence for murdering three port workers in its coal terminal in India last year. The other side of this fault line is beautifully characterised by the children's climate strike plan for mid-March, where thousands of school children are walking out of their classrooms in solidarity with the millions of working class poor globally that are already carrying the heaviest burden created by human-made climate change. Danny, as an official of the MUA in one of Australia's biggest mining states, you've been recently publicly talking about a proposal for a wind generation plant in Victoria. What is this and why is the MUA interested in it? So the proposal for one of the largest, if not the largest offshore wind farm in the world is actually um, looking to be set up in Victoria. It's uh, by a company called Offshore Energy and the project is called the Star of the South. As a union official and as a, a representative of workers in the oil and gas sector, we think it's extremely important to get in front of the curve and ahead of the curve uh, and have a say uh, and an ability to be able to ensure that those jobs in the offshore uh, with regards to offshore wind, so that's the loading, the construction and the maintenance, all become MUA jobs. I mean, what we're not going to see or what, what we can't do as an organisation and as a union is put our head in the sand uh, and pretend that this global shift is not going to occur. Well, I mean, we can do that, 
but it's going to come at the expense of jobs. We've seen it around the world, and unfortunately, um, you know, some of the people in the environmental movement forget about the workers. We understand there needs to be a fundamental shift uh, in energy production for the sake of the planet, but the workers always get left behind. What we're saying as a union is that anybody that loses their jobs in coal, anybody that loses their jobs in the oil and gas sector over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 or 50 years, they need to go and walk into those good, solid union jobs in renewable energy. And there's a whole heap of potential for that. So with regards to the offshore wind, what we would say, I mean, if the windmills themselves aren't going to be produced and manufactured in Australia, we would say that there should be Australian seafarers on the vessels bringing these pipes and these windmills in. We're going to have Australian stevedores loading and unloading these pipes. And we're going to have Australian seafarers taking out and performing the construction of this field. And then, of course, we're going to have Australian seafarers running the constant maintenance on this massive, massive wind farm. We're better getting in front of it than sticking our head in the sand and ending up with exploited overseas labour in this sector. Now, the coalition government's been totally negligent in this. They're trying to delay the project, and I understand Penny may go into this a bit later. But as an organisation and as a union, it's very important that we get on the front foot. So tell me a bit more about this project. It's a, it's offshore. It's been proposed to be an offshore wind-generating plant. So that's, what is it, windmills in the ocean, is it? Yeah, it's effectively windmills. What it does, um, I mean, we're in favour of offshore wind. And if you go to Norway, if you go to Denmark, um, you know, this has been happening for, for decades. It's been going on for a long, long time. If you fly over Europe, you will see hundreds of these windmills in the middle of the ocean. And if you recall a few years ago, Tony Abbott came out um, and said, you know, run the scare campaign about windmills and they're giving people headaches and they look ugly. If they're offshore, they're not giving anyone headaches and no one can see them. So it really shuts down that argument um, for the kinds of Angus Taylors of the world who say that these windmills are ugly and they cause all sorts of problems. And according to your understanding, are they actually capable of producing a lot of power? Well, yes. Um, I, I believe the statistic, Penny might correct me here, um, just from the, the initial stages of this project, uh, there's, there's a chance to power up to at least 20% of Melbourne or Victoria's electricity. Wow. Um, now, this, this is not to say that offshore wind is the entire solution and that gas and oil is going to disappear overnight. Of course it's not. You need oil and gas to ensure that these renewable forms of energy can be produced and, and you know, they, they run as a complement or a supplement um, to the base energy, which will be gas. But eventually over time, there is going to be enough renewable sources of energy that we can totally move away from oil and gas. And, and we will see that and we have to. Um, as a society. But Australia, fortunately, uh, is one of the most resource-rich states when it comes to renewable um, sources. The sun, the wind, the wave technology, we can be a global superpower in these forms of energies, and we can actually export this energy overseas. And, and it ties into the hydrogen. You know, we can be exporting hydrogen as opposed to gas, but we can ensure that there are local seafarers Aussie seafarers on these ships that are taking our renewable energy overseas to power the rest of the world. Yeah, and I think it's important to get our heads around just how huge this one project that's been proposed is. As Danny was saying, 20% of Victoria's electricity 
over a million homes that could be powered through this. They're talking about 12,000 construction jobs, 300 ongoing jobs with maintenance. So it's a huge project. They might have to entirely rebuild a port in uh, southern Victoria to be able to accommodate all the preparation, the discharge, and then reloading of these vessels. There's specialized vessels that get used in construction. And one of the things we're actually proposing, you might have heard over the weekend earlier this week, Bill Shorten talking about the creation of a national strategic fleet in Australia. One of the things that we've actually just been discussing this week is making offshore wind construction vessels part of that fleet so that we've got those vessels here and ready to go. And if they roll out this project, they can go on and roll out the next project because... There has been a global boom in constructing these kinds of projects. There's 28 of them currently being constructed in the U.S. right now. So that means there's a big shortage of uh, vessels all around the world to be able to do this work. And, you know, we don't want this to be the only project. We want more and more projects. And there's good, solid, practical reasons behind this. The windmills that are being constructed onshore in Victoria right now are mostly in the western side of the state. And apparently most of the areas where they're being constructed are kind of full at this point. This project would hook into the grid at the Latrobe Valley, which has already got all the infrastructure there for handling heavy, large electricity. It would help provide jobs in that area through the construction and maintenance of that project and provide power to that different part of the electricity grid. The other issue with offshore wind is you've got a more consistent supply that's also going to happen at different times than the onshore wind farms. And it's actually part of the AEMO, the energy market operators. They've got an overall plan, such as it is for a, a splintered up privatized system that we have. But they do, they have generated a sort of overall plan. And they say that having this kind of a project in the place that it's proposed makes sense in terms of doing a plan for our forward electricity needs. So Danny, if you, you imagine that this project does go ahead and it's the first of potentially many such projects, how do we actually make sure that it is uh, oil and gas workers or former oil and gas workers that get these jobs? How do we make sure that they're union jobs? Well, that's a, that's a very good question, mate. I mean, obviously that's our position. But the fundamental question is, how do we ensure that we get there? Uh, and speaking to some of our Dutch brothers and sisters, those who lose their jobs in, in coal, for example, and, and are moving into this position, governments would subsidise workers' wages if there was a short lag. And this is going to come around government policy. A number of specialists and experts in the field say the only way to ensure that the workers who lose their jobs in oil and gas or coal that go into this is to ensure that they're government jobs. They need to be government projects. Now, if that's not the case... We need legislation around that to ensure that we create a kind of forum to ensure that these workers do not lose out. And that's what's so fundamental for us. It's very important that we support this change, and it is inevitable it's coming, but we've got to be on the front foot and ensure that we have a say in who goes where. Now, with private enterprise, as you know, that's very, very difficult to do. So um, we would say that part of it needs to be state or federally owned and federally controlled, and potentially not this project, but going forward, the future industries that we potentially have in this country as, as a global superpower of renewable energy, we can set that up. There's no reason why we can't. Oil and gas companies get massive, massive, massive subsidies from the government and have done over the last 10, 15, 20 or 30 years. It would actually be great to get some mapping on that, how much the Australian public have actually paid for these projects to go ahead, as well as on top of the tax that hasn't been paid by the likes of Chevron and the likes of these companies. So if you can weigh that up, um, I'm sure that there's an ability to subsidise workers who have a lag, have a gap, um, but then have an ability to step into these union jobs going forward. 
Yeah, and the ACTU policy, what they're pushing for is a thing called an energy transition authority that would do exactly what Danny has said. Now, what's being proposed and what's, I think, been to a large extent agreed by the Labour Party, although it obviously has not been implemented yet, is that that would just cover workers who are currently working in coal-fired electricity plants. We're saying that's a good start, but as Danny outlined, that's not enough because there are so many other workers who are going to be impacted by these kinds of transitions. But the principle that it sets up is that the government and all of us have got a responsibility to make sure that these workers have got somewhere to go and are supported through the process of getting there. The other thing, I mean, just on an international level, what Danny said, there's a whole network of, of unions called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy that are campaigning for this transition, but reinforcing the importance of what Nanny said about it being a publicly organized, publicly funded transition, that we need governments to play a lead in doing this. We can't just leave it to the private sector to come up with specific individual projects on a kind of haphazard basis. It needs to be, we need to look at what are the emissions reductions that need to happen? How are we going to get there? What are the jobs that are going to be available in that transition? And who's going to pay and make that investment to make that happen? At Unity Bank, we are 100% committed to maritime workers. We pride ourselves on delivering better all-round value to our members and their families. Unity Bank, proud supporter of the Maritime Union of Australia and sponsor of this podcast. Uh, The MUA has always been a very progressive union and in front of the curve on a whole range of issues. Some of this work that you're describing, Danny, I understand is consistent with the new MUA climate change policy. Um, Penny, perhaps do you want to tell us a little bit about that policy? Yeah, sure. We had a bit of a debate about this at the uh, the last MUA national conference that was in 2016, and we kind of got stuck around the question of this exact question about what do we do about workers who are currently in the coal industry. National Council has now approved a new a new policy. It was distributed at the last monthly meeting, and I think it's available on the MUA website now. But basically what we're saying is we need, we recognize the science, we recognize the fact that we need to reduce, we need to ensure that warming doesn't happen by more than a degree and a half. Otherwise, we're going to be in a pretty catastrophic situation. We recognize that governments and the ruling class around the world are doing absolutely nothing. They're taking us off the edge of a cliff to, you know, a five degree potential increase and that we're going to have to lead the way to reorganize our energy systems, our transport systems, our manufacturing systems, all of those things. But that there is potentially a benefit for us there, that there's a huge amount of work, a huge amount of jobs, a huge amount of investment that's going to be needed to make those changes. So it's really centered around those general principles and then, you know, getting down to some more of the detail in terms of what are those jobs in the maritime industry? How are those things going to be regulated? But yeah, it's, it's a, that's a general idea. Danny, are those kind of principles consistent with the work that you're currently doing out of the WA branch? Yes, absolutely. I mean, over here in the WA branch, we've been part of the WA Climate Network. Um, as in, uh, Penny has alluded to or referred to, we're part of Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, um, and it's driven out of the Sydney branch and out of national office. But over here in Western Australia, we've been having this conversation for a number of years just to ensure that we get in front of this issue and ensure that our workers are transitioned in a fair way from union jobs to union jobs that are good, secure, well-paid jobs for our members to go into in the future. So just off the top of your head, mate, what proportion of the WA, MUA branch would be involved in oil and gas production? Construction would be the initial phase for us. We're predominantly involved in the construction phases. So when there's major projects going, say we'd have, I don't know, we have 3,600, say, I don't know, 2,000? 
Yep. So a substantial proportion of your branch is currently involved in that sector of the economy. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yes. And, and so effectively what we're seeing here is a major union which represents oil and gas workers getting ahead of the curve and pushing for green energy initiatives. Is that how you would understand what's going on? Well, yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to push. Um, I'm not saying, and just to be clear for the membership here, this isn't about eradicating gas overnight. It's not going to happen that way. Uh, if you look at the, the projects that are online at the moment and that are set to come online, like the Scarborough field for Woodside, you know, that next phase of drilling for IMPEX, um, potentially, and this is contentious, the GAB project in South Australia with Equinor, there's a lot of work coming up and this will go for the next few years. But if you look at what's happened in New Zealand, uh, Jacinta Arden's come out and said there's going to be no more oil and gas licences issued in New Zealand. If that were to happen here, we're already on the back foot. So we need to get in front of this. When we're talking about Equinor and, and having this view, this is how we look to create jobs for our members. At the WA branch here, we've been meeting with Equinor, which is the old Statoil who's proposing to drill in the Great Australia Bite. Now, obviously, their issue is around safety and there's a big environmental push for that not to occur. Uh, we're obviously strongly um, supportive of a safe process. But what we also say to Equinor is that they're a massive, massive company on a global scale when it comes to renewable energy. There's some other good examples, too, about the jobs that can exist as well. So, for example, I know the Sydney branch certainly supports um, plugging in ships, uh, getting the infrastructure right so that you can, ships can be plugged in when they're alongside and not running generators. Now, that's construction jobs and building that. You know, there'd be jobs in the port in terms of actually doing the plugging in and out. And, of course, that's a huge reduction of emissions in that port, which, you know, is good for the climate, but also good for the people who are working there, too. Another thing that's going on right now, there's a proposal to um, build a new container port in Newcastle. Now, that's quite important, I think, in this context, because Newcastle is one of the world's largest coal terminals. So, actually building other jobs um, in that port is really important for the maritime workers uh, in that port as well because we don't want to see union members in that port left high and dry either and that, you know, that port shut down. It's a, it, you know, it's a good solid port and we want to diversify the uses of that port as well. So if the MUA is pushing uh, as one of the major oil and gas unions in this country right now for getting ahead of the curve, as you say, Danny, and building massive green infrastructure projects, why isn't it going ahead? What's stopping these projects from going ahead? There's a couple things. There's a huge gap. Right now, the planning, the normal state planning bodies only go up to three nautical miles offshore. That's the state jurisdiction. Once you get further than three nautical miles offshore, most of these projects doing these kinds of things would be looked at by NOPSEMA. Probably a lot of our listeners know that's the oil and gas regulator for offshore oil and gas projects. But the legislation that they work under says that they only do petroleum projects. So there's actually literally no one responsible for the development of offshore wind or other renewable energy projects in Australia. So that means if somebody, not only is the government like not even thinking about it, but if a private company wants to set up a project, there's kind of no process for them to follow. So what's happened with this project, they've gone and talked to the energy minister. The Department of Energy has kind of come up with a customized solution that's run sort of directly through that department. And what we were able to find out at the Senate estimates the other week, we got some politicians to ask questions of the department. And what the department told us is they've they've looked at this license, they've assessed this license. They told us actually that just this first stage, the exploration, isn't even going to involve any seismic surveying, as is really common in offshore petroleum. It's basically just putting some floating buoys in the water to assess what the wind and current conditions are in the area that they're going to build in. They've given all those recommendations to the minister, and the minister's just sitting on them. 
Of course, part of the backstory with this minister is he is personally a campaigner against wind energy and windmill projects in his own constituency of Hume, which is just uh, southwest of southwest of Sydney, it's, uh, Angus Taylor. So we've got this anti-renewable, climate change-denying person as our Minister of Energy right now, and he's the person with responsibility for approving this huge project that would mean, as I said, you know, 12,000 construction jobs, and he's sitting on it just because he's got, you know, a thing against windmills. So it's pretty pretty shit situation all around. Well, so there you have it. On the one hand, you've got the potential for massive growth in jobs for oil and gas workers in the production of green energy, including seafarers, including construction workers, port workers. We've got one of the major unions in the country, the MUA, pushing for that to go ahead. And on the other side of the ledger, you've got a conservative government that's actually standing in front of that project. Danny, how do you think your membership feels about that, mate? To be honest, we've been having conversations with our membership around this stuff at every stop work meeting, at every vessel visit that, that I jump on. We have this conversation and the members are supportive. The members are supportive of the creation of good new union jobs, and and why wouldn't we be? It's an absolute positive, not just for them, but also for the globe. And as I say, this is not going to result in the imminent cancellation or the end to gas tomorrow. It's not going to be the end of oil and gas in the next two, three years. It's not going to happen. But we need to be on the front foot to ensure that there is a future for MUA members and MUA jobs. But also, if the government changes... Given the commitments that are coming out of Bill Shorten at the moment, you know, to secure Aussie jobs, to secure fuel security, to secure um, future work for, for Australians, these international runs and exporting renewable energy with Australian as a, a global superpower of renewable energy creates even more opportunities for MUA members and CFMMEU members in the sense of the loadout and the exportation through vessels, through wharves of the renewable sector and renewable energy. So there's so much opportunity. There's no need for anyone to be worried about it. There's no need to, for anyone to be scared about it. It's about really managing a real transition from members over the next five, ten years out of oil and gas into a, a new renewable sector with good, strong, well-paid, secure union jobs. And I'd encourage any seafarers listening, hop on YouTube and put in offshore wind construction. And there's a whole number of short clips in there that will just give you a sense of how enormous these projects are, what the kinds of vessels that are involved, what's the port development that's involved. It's really quite fascinating because it is a whole new a whole new industry and a whole new set of challenge that I reckon our members are really up for taking on. Maritime Super is the largest industry fund for the maritime industry. With a proud history as one of Australia's longest-running super funds, Maritime Super delivers innovative super and retirement benefits, helping its members make the right decisions to secure their financial freedom into the future. To learn more, email www.maritimesuper.com.au. Well, that is a beautiful demonstration of a progressive vision for Australian workers and also in solidarity with the millions of poor people worldwide who are really bearing the brunt of what's happening in climate change at the moment. Thank you very much for coming on to share that with us, Danny and Penny. I appreciate it. Cheers, guys. You've been listening to Radio Stingray, which is the podcast of the Sydney branch of the MUA. If you like it, I encourage you to share it on all the socials. Go on to whatever podcast provider you usually use and subscribe. And remember, if you can see the water... Join the MUA. See you next time.
You're tuned in to Radio Stingray. Radio Stingray podcast was brought to you by McNally Jones Staff Lawyers, assisting MUA members and their families for 40 years. Phone 9233 or visit mcnally.com.au and get McNally's on your side.